Today's show is sponsored by Airtable. Airtable is the all-in-one collaboration tool that powers the teams behind the next generation of addictive multimedia content. That's reality shows like 60 Days In on A&E, thoughtful technology reviews from The Wirecutter, quick-turn video from powerhouses like Group 9 Media and Condé Nast Entertainment. All those companies use Airtable, so you should try it today. Get $50 in credit free by visiting Airtable.com slash Recode Media. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. I am part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm saying these words from memory. I don't need a script. Um, to people who do not need scripts because they're awesome media reporters. Sarah Ellison, formerly of Vanity Fair, now at Washington Post. Jim Rutenberg, New York Times, are joining us in studio. Welcome, guys. Hi. Thanks for having us. Thanks yeah, for thank coming. You. This is Jim's second visit, but the first time in person. He yeah. joined us for a brief cameo over the phone. Inaugural in-person visit. And I said, I promised we'll, we'll bring you in studio what before the end of the year. What were about the last time? And it's beautiful yeah. and a great colleague here. Yeah, we talked about Russia, oh. of course. We did. They better slow down. <laughs> <laughs> That's gonna be. It's gonna be this kind of podcast. It's a year-end podcast. We're gonna talk about what happened in 2017 because some mm. stuff happened. Mm. Look ahead a little bit. Um, I was trying to figure out what the story of the year was besides Donald Trump, but that seems a bit like a fool's errand. It seems like Donald Trump swamped the media landscape, and everything else that we talk about is still related to Donald Trump. I mean, I think you could say Harvey was another really big story. Um, and of sort of a media story. Yeah, and we can kind of link the two, right? There's a theory I think you've written about, and other people have written about it. said the Harvey Weinstein story has come out of, in part, a reaction to Donald Trump. Let's save that big thought for okay. a minute. Um, besides Trump, I was thinking about uh, media consolidation, which we can mm-hmm. also tether to Trump, right? Facebook, obvious Trump angles there. So we could spend the entire half hour, 40 minutes, 45 minutes talking about Trump. Is there anything else that we should get to as we're sort of laying out a menu here? Harvey, I mean, Trump, Facebook, media consolidation. Right-wing media? Mm-hmm. Trump. Sinclair. Trump. Right-wing media yeah. to say Trump. We could have a Venn diagram. Stations, though, you know, yeah, yeah, FCC, yeah. regulatory, net neutrality. Yeah, AT&T, Time Warner. Trump, Trump, Trump. Which is Facebook. <laughs> let's, Trump, let's, let's start CNN, with Trump. Trump. Have Trump on the, okay. on the brain. How did the media, <laughs> after, after the election of last year, mm-hmm. a lot of soul-searching, a lot of public uh, self-flagellation, we did a bad job covering Trump in the election. We did a bad job covering the underlying causes that led to Trump. We'll do better in 2017. How do you think the media, us, did broadly covering Trump this year? I mean, I would say that they did, they, we, um, did largely okay, did better. Um, there wasn't the same kind of, I mean, there was a marked shift in the kind of the to- overall tone of the coverage. Whereas it was a great show in 2016 and everybody was, you know, laughing and having a grand time from these elite media circles that we live in. Then everyone had the moment of horror after he was elected. Not everyone, um, but I, I would say that that's like, we're, we're, these are broad strokes. And then there was a really hard turn to more investigative work that happened this year. The oh shit, he's president work we have to do. Yeah, I mean, it was a wake-up call as it was for many, many other sectors, and people thought, oh, God, what have we been doing? We, this, this totally improbable thing happened. What did we do to, to either ignore that or assist that? So there's um, a thing last year that happened that said, oh, well, he's 
running for president and he seems to be first in the polls. So we have to take him a little bit seriously and we at least have to give him airtime. And also, by the way, that airtime is entertaining. Oh, we no, I think people were like, we want to give him right. airtime. I mean, the whole CNN story was we want to give him airtime because he's great for ratings. And then we sort of said, oh, well, maybe that was wrong. And then we spent a good portion of the beginning of this year saying, when he tweets this crazy stuff, mm-hmm. what do we do about that? Is right. that a thing? That's the president of the United States talking? That's right. a real thing? It seems like we've spent a lot of energy, at least the beginning of the year, talking about that. Seems to, We seem to have acclimated to that. I think, yeah, I think there's been an adjustment. And if you think about it, I think in terms of my, in my 25 years in this business, it's, there's never been a year like it in terms of journalistic highs, mm-hmm. right? It's not to say everyone was perfect. There were some big mistakes that fed this anti- press movement that he's forwarding um, very loudly. But just think about it. Every time uh, the Washington Post, the Times, the AP, CNN, Vox, everyone came up with these really big, great stories this year. And he said fake news and they were repeatedly vindicated. The Russian investigation repeatedly uh, vindicated in the reportage there. In some cases, the investigators learned from the media. So I think it's been amazing Mm-hmm. It's been an amazing rallying for just good journalism. The question I have about that, though, is um, do people believe the media or do they believe when Donald Trump says fake news? How effective has that um, those attacks been? I think they've been pretty effective. Um, so I think that's really worrisome for people in the media. You, people are, you know, doing these bang-up stories and then with one Sort of landing tweet, with a thought or not landing. Not landing, I mean, they're landing in 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 certain. It, it's not every story has not landed. There have been stories that have landed, but it's a it's a frightening kind of atmosphere. One of the themes of the the postmortem last fall was we really have to get out of New York. We have to get out of Washington. We have to leave Los Angeles. We have to go to the middle of the country where Donald Trump voters live and talk to them and figure mm-hmm. out how to speak to them. Um, and people have done various stories where they've done that, or they've said, hey, you know what? I know that everyone in the world thinks that Trump is viewed this way, but I just went to Michigan during the Women's March, and I talked to a bunch of women, and they're all for him. Mm-hmm. Um, seems, though, that the energy for that kind of reporting has also fallen off a bit. Well, I think what's interesting is that I would say we, the, the media is doing a good job, um, but the reckoning in the media is happening where people are looking at there's there you know the economic repercussions of the Trump bump ending are really clear. Um, there's still a kind of what I like to talk about is the Us Weekly version of White House reporting where we only people are engaged in the um, in policy reporting, but not nearly as much as they're engaged in Javanka reporting. Mm-hmm. Or I mean, I say this. Fully. You did one of the best Javanka stories of the year. I mean, I'm I'm doing it too. Um, but I think that people, in some ways, there's this incredible government 101 um, education that's happening for everybody. Because you're like, wait, who has that job? What does the EPA do? Oh, what they're not doing right now is what the EPA used to do. And so there's this very like basic kind of reporting. But a lot of it is these personalities that are right. carrying their function, whereas before no one ever paid attention to that. Are you guys thinking about how you're going to cover these stories next year and what kind of tweaks you're going to make? Or, look, the news is the news. You cover it as it goes. You follow a lead on Russia. You follow a lead on Harvey Weinstein. And and it's sort of silly to plot this stuff out in advance. There's a lot of that. I mean, that's the business, and that's also why we love the business. You know, it's like the cliche when I started. You never know what each day is going to bring, and that's never, (laughs) never been more true. I do think, for instance, um, the press bashing story, where's that go? I think— 
he's bashing the press again is no longer – it's not news anymore. He bashes the press regularly. But then it's what's the next step or what isn't the next step and what's it really leading to. I think uh, we've seen a good example lately of um, stories about the effect overseas when mm-hmm. dictators and people who really are cracking down on press freedom repeat his language and take their cues but it's the coverage has to lead to somewhere and not just be, again, the tweet of the day, the rant of the day, the crazy thing that came out of the White House today. Right. It's like you have to advance the story. And so I agree. The fake news is something that, you know, being quotes um, is something that people are sort of inured to at this point. I also think that there's a real issue, though, with um, everybody that I know who does the kind of job that all of us do your head's on a swivel. You just can't focus on any one thing for a very long period of time. So if you don't take a minute to think about how are we, what are the big themes that we want to make sure we have kind of, you know, some night between 9 p.m. and midnight, we're going to sit down and think, all right, this is how we're going to tackle these four big topics. If the media don't do that, then we're still just going to be chasing our own tails because Donald Trump might be bad at a lot of things. He's very, very good at media, whether you want to call it manipulation or, you know, he's very good at that. He's very good at staying in the headlines. He's very good at staying in the headlines and leading it. I mean, I think your colleague Maggie Haberman said that there was this quality about him where he can make, he's like Harold in the Purple Crown, where he can make what he says the reality. It helps that he's the president, but he'll say something that you think this is absurd and then slowly over time, there's it sort of resonates in a way that's just kind of, it seemed impossible at the outset. Right. We spent, again, spent a bunch of time saying, well, is this, is this a strategy? Is this plan? Right. Again, Maggie's right. been good about saying, no, this is all reactive. Right. Him. It's all instinctive and reactive. And the fact that he's brought this rogues gallery to Washington with him all, you know, stories about Omarosa and the right. 10 days of Scaramucci. Right. They're all delicious stories. Um, she, again, you wrote this great uh, uh, Freud story about uh, Jared Kushner and Ivanka being sort of booed in Washington. Um, th- there is there is constantly this refrain of like, well, we shouldn't overcover that stuff. We really mm-hmm. need to do talk about the EPA. We need to explain tax policy. But at some point, you can't force that to readers. Well, he's governing in plot lines, right, and narratives. And, we, right. and the danger is it, it, we all get swept up in narratives and our readers get swept up in narratives. And Peter, to your point, you know, the, the heavy policy stories that we do, the heartland stories that we do, let, they are not on our most viewed list. They just, that means look, we're lucky enough that we will keep doing them because we have the resources. Right. But, you know, the readers, <laughs> you can t- say eat your peas all you want. There's just a reality here that certain stories are just the readers cannot get enough of. So Yeah, and I think that they, before this is all, before Trump was the only thing that we talked about, the only thing that we talked about in media was how there was this revolution in media where the editors of the New York Times and the Washington Post weren't able to shake their fingers at people and say, this is what you have to read. You know, you have to let people, there was citizen journalism, there were all these other upstarts, you know, Vox, for example, that had sort of started out of what fan, you know, what, what people who were like rabid fans for a particular area wanted to read about. And so I think that you know, now everybody's saying, well, the New York Times has to be really responsible and the Washington Post and everybody else has to be really responsible. Um, but people want to read what they want to read and they want to read like infotainment. So there's a good segue there to Facebook. 
mm-hmm. um, and their role. I think, you know, again, after the election, there was this immediate thing about fake news mm-hmm. and then that morphed into a Facebook and Russia story and how it's been Facebook manipulated and text reckoning. But I, I think the big story about Facebook is is the broader one about disaggregate, about sort of disrupting the power of the New York Times and the Washington mm-hmm. Post to, to set that agenda. It's now set by an algorithm, yep. right? And uh, Facebook will say, no, you're setting it, the consumer setting it, you're telling us what we want and we give you more of that. So don't blame the computers, blame yourself. Um, but to me, that that is one of the big stories of the year, Trump or no Trump. I couldn't agree more. I think that the, cr- the crazy thing about that story is that we don't know what the algorithm is. We can't see it. We can't judge it. There's no transparency to that. Um, so it's a, impo- it's a very, very hard story to cover because... I wouldn't know what the algorithm would say even if it was sitting right in front of me. Right. And I think, first of all, you can't cover that story enough right now. And that's that, I think, the Trump phenomena and the Trump presidency has been at somewhat a detriment. Even though it's boosted some of that coverage, it's also been a detriment because there's so much more to report out. And Facebook is for, they've, they've talked a good game and they've taken some actions. But I think, from knowing what you guys write and tweet, we all agree that it's not enough and the transparency isn't there. And I, and to me, it's structural. I don't think they can really control the thing, at least and have it be Facebook, right? It, it, is, it is sort of a perpetual motion machine. They mm-hmm. can tweak it and play with dials even though they say they won't. But Facebook is built to sort of operate at scale almost sort of without human input. Right. I think they could be... They, there's no question they could be less secretive about how they do it. And that would be the beginning of letting people know what they're playing into. You know, I don't like seeing the ad. I mean, like, there, there are things, as you say, like blame yourself. For sure, when I'm on Facebook and I see a story pop up, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I did look at that like <laughs> story. I'm so embarrassed. I don't want, nope, that is not me. I'm not doing that. Um, if they would let, I think there's a there's a massive, I mean, this is for all of Silicon Valley. There's just zero transparency for the way that it operates, and Facebook is at the top of that list. There's a story, I think it broke last night. I don't know who broke it. Maybe you guys broke it. Maybe they just put it out. Facebook put out this idea that they're not going to flag things that are false anymore. They were going to fact check, and they're done with that. Yeah, Actually, they were never going to fact check. They were going to ask other people to fact check. And then flag it. Right. And now, now they're basically saying, we're going to we, – our social science has shown – it's also touchy-feely – that uh, people don't react to that. And what we need people to react to is a, a counter story that will show the truth. And you know what? Imagine – Again, if we did that, we are not correcting our incorrect story. We because the reader may not read because we're <laughs> react a platform. Well, I also think that they just they're so definitely a media company yeah. and don't act like one. Don't like the, the the responsibility is not there. I think that they did. You know, they had these series of off the record dinners with journalists, and Campbell Brown went around and talked to everyone. And good dinners. They were they were lovely, um, but I think that it's a. Uh, this is a segue to another topic that we could maybe discuss, but the idea that these are, you know, the power of Silicon Valley and the power of Facebook in particular, because it is a, a platform and not a media company, um, it's it's been so unchecked. It's like people are ticked off about it. Steve Bannon is mad about yep. it. Media people are mad about it. Do you guys um, believe the narrative that is we've heard for the last uh, three months or so that it's Silicon Valley is it's, it's, there was a rec- there's a political reckoning coming? That these guys have been unchecked and now something is going to happen that is going to sort of restrain them to some degree or or at least maybe something will happen. I mean, I think that the best chance for that actually happening is you get the best 
media company lobbyists, like the or telecom company lobbyists, like those who work for AT and T, who are now desperately like chain, you know, training their howitzers on Facebook and the other Silicon Valley companies to be like, why you don't want to let our deal go through for Time Warner? But what about these huge monopolies out in Silicon Valley? I think that when there's a real profit motive and you yeah. put those high-priced lawyers on a case like this, that is the best case, I think, for the best chance, I think, for that reckoning actually happening. And and then on a lower, to a, a beginning level, which isn't as major as that, we, we know almost with certainty there will be some kind of regulation for their political advertising after what happened with the Russian ads. Right. Mm-hmm. No matter what. And that's, and all that they're really being asked to do is do what television Minimal compliance. I mean, it's pretty simple. Yeah. My, they're ready I'm, for that. I'm, I'm, dubious that there's going to be anything in the U.S. that's going to restrain them in any significant way. Mm -hmm. I don't think in a Donald Trump era there's going to be any regulatory, outside of weird CNN, AT&T, Time Warner stuff. Um, I don't think anyone's going to win a vote campaigning against Facebook. And I think that's why Donald Trump didn't campaign against Facebook. And I think as much as Steve Bannon walks around saying that there's a reckoning coming, I don't don't think anyone goes to the poll and pulls a lever against Facebook. It might not be that um, energizing no, and I think, and, and also I think, you know, we could argue why the, you and I, the three of us, can make a decent argument why Facebook poses a problem for the democracy. We can talk about Amazon's monopoly power. I think a lot of these products are really well liked by a lot of people. Totally. Though Europe is making these yes. moves that are very un-American, right? Totally. Against everything that we believe, and they they do. The platforms are still trying to maintain something of a unified global standard, so that could have an effect. Yeah, and you're too. seeing, you know, over time. Years after the fact, Europe's starting to clip Google a tiny bit, you know, a $3 billion fine. Well, the fines aren't what it, 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 but it might be an actual, yeah, obviously the the fines are pocket change. But the idea at least is sort of there. I don't know if that's going to resonate. No, if there's regulation, it's going to be in Europe, I think. Right. Um, and And I think Facebook would very much react if... People actually stopped using Facebook in significant numbers because they were unhappy about it, and that would be more oh, meaningful yeah. than anything else. Totally. Um, Facebook's a free service. This podcast is a free podcast because it's supported by fine advertisers. So we will hear from them and be right back. Today's show is brought to you by Zip Recruiter. Does your business have any New Year's resolutions? Here's an important one every business should consider make your hiring process more efficient and effective. Zip Recruiter can help you. You can post your job to more than 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click. Then ZipRecruiter actively looks for the most qualified candidates and invites them to apply. 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. Right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free, zero dollars. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Peter. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Peter. One more time because it's free. It's worth telling you about three times. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Peter. Dulcet tones. Back here with the dulcet tones of Jim Rutenberg <laughs> and Sarah Ellison. Jim is the New York Times. Sarah is about to be at the Washington Post. Right. When, when will we see a first byline from you? Um, well, I start my orientation on January 22nd. So, I don't know how going to get oriented? Take. Are they going to make you watch the Post? I don't know. I've not been orientated in 
so long. Uh, you know, when I was at Vanity Fair, they didn't. You didn't have to be orientated. You didn't. They they told me at the Washington Post, they were like, "We're going to do a background check. You have to pass a drug test." I was like, "I'm perfectly happy to do both of those things." But this is so unusual that I'm being treated in like an. I, I need to go to an orientation about some kind of method publishing system. <laughs> um, I want to talk about the actual work you guys do. Sarah, up until now, you've been working at Vanity Fair, but right. publishing, I don't know, a couple times a week? No. No, not that like, much? Not, maybe once a week, but not even always. Depends on whether I'm working on a big magazine piece or, but frequently. And yeah. Jim, you're weekly with the occasional pop-in for a big Harvey Weinstein story. Yeah, and a lot of times this year, it's been twice weekly. Yeah. yeah. And But now I'm juggling investigative work, so, um, which... You know, writing a uh, trying to write a good column and investigative work can't go hand in hand because right. you need the time to crash into walls and. So you guys are doing holes. investigative pieces. You're doing reported pieces. They take more than an hour to write, <laughs> more than a day to write usually. Um, in a world where the news flow is coming through minute by minute, everyone knows this by now. Do you feel pressure to go? Shit! I, I just got to get this out. I can't wait the X number of days to have something to say about Trump. Or AT and T, Time Warner, or whatever it is, and I just, I just got to get something out now because I can't wait a week or two weeks for this piece to land. Um, it really depends. Like some weeks, I have to jump in. Yeah. Like I just have to. And those are those those moments are almost easier columns to write because it's just like da 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 da. Here it is, boom. Right. Um, the harder ones are like if they get a little high concept, sometimes too high concept. You need reporting and editing. What I find when I'm now juggling also the investigative work is you sometimes you have to let those moments go. And when you do, you are reminded that this pace did not always exist. Mm-hmm. In a lot of cases, the story is still there when you get to it. I think we're all getting sucked into this speed of Twitter because it's it's there on our phones all day. We're news people. Some of I grew up watching The Wires, which we've yeah. so it's it's hard, but I think ultimately you just have to stay focused on what the thing that matters the most in your daily duties. I mean, I th- would say that the idea that you have today has to get so much better if you wait 2 days to put it out because yeah. somebody else is smarter than you and they're going to yeah. say it faster. Yep. Um so it is easier to just like have the idea, write it very fast, put it out, you hope that you're in the first scrum of the billion headlines that come out about it. Um but there is, I mean, Vanity Fair is still a monthly when you're doing a magazine piece. And there's something about that that you can use to your advantage when, as we've discussed before, everybody's head is on a swivel. Nobody can remember what the thought was from 10 a.m. this morning. They're like, wait, that was so yesterday. Oh, no, it was just this morning. I can't believe it seems. And so if you really do take a minute to, whether it's digging into an investigative piece or really kind of taking your time with something, you can do that. It gets harder and harder. The quality of the news is really, the quality of the instant news is really yeah. high. So if you're going to wait to right, write we used something, to dismissively talk about, well, they're just reblogging the times. Yeah. but And they do, right? You'll do a Jared Ivanka story, have them rewrite it. That's the nature of the beast. But a lot of the stuff that is coming out quickly now is reported or is very high. It's so good. Quality. I mean, it's like I, I don't know what the millennials are doing with their fingers, but they definitely are moving faster than I am. Yeah. And so it's like, ugh. I had Oliver Darcy <laughs> and, uh, from CNN and, and Charlie Wurzel from BuzzFeed in to do a talk about right-wing media earlier this summer. And I told them I was on a Twitter diet and I'd taken it off my phones and they looked at me like, <laughs> you get crazy. I don't really, <laughs> don't understand how you literally how you can do your job right. without Twitter. But I do want to say in these stories, as well as as good as the reporting is, 
the news is moving so fast that they, the story is always there's always a lot left in every story. Exactly. You know that you exactly. can go back and it's there's so much that's unexplored. Matt Lauer at NBC. You know if we go to the, on the on the sexual harassment part of the beat, that's a huge story. There's so much more to do. You guys have done more. We're, we've done more, but there's still more to do. Totally. You, just, you could in a normal in what we used to think was normal that would be like months of coverage. Yeah, I mean I think that. It's true that a lot of huge stories are being done in a day and moving on. And that the Lauer story in particular was like, this was a story for a day. <laughs> you had the guy who had been on the Today Show for 20, more than 20 years, the biggest star by far in television news. Um, and there's a, there's that is actually a huge institutional pressure to not revisit that stuff because it's like who's who's that really going to get in terms of readers do we re- does the average person really want to know that much more well this is a great moment where journalists say you don't know what you don't know yes thank like you. we could tell you something that you really want to know but you don't know it yet like and neither do i trying to dig into the story which is a gamble and your bosses have to be willing to kind of let you do that and it might be a dry hole which is no not, no fun for anybody but i i think it's a uh, Stressful. Speaking of enterprise stories and harassment, um, Jim, your paper was one of the two that that did the seminal Harvey Weinstein stories. Um, We talked a little bit about why those stories came out now instead of over the last decade. This is a story that people sort of knew in varying degrees. Mm -hmm. A variation on that question. Harvey Weinstein wasn't the first big figure to be taken down in a harassment by harassment charges. Um, You could argue that Bill O'Reilly is much better known throughout the country. Yeah. Than Harvey Weinstein was, um, and he lost his job earlier this year because of harassment charges. Why, why did the Weinstein story break things open in a way the Roger Ailes and O'Reilly and, and any of the other earlier harassment stories we've seen did not? Well, first of all, I don't think the Weinstein story ends up happening the way it happened if it isn't for O'Reilly, Ailes, and Trump's election, right? So you think there's a through line there? Yeah, and Harvey hits bigger for reasons that may say a lot about our culture, but it is what it is. You know, um, you have famous people who are the victims. Right, so he wasn't famous, but the vic- some of the victims were. People, you could finally put them on the cover of the Inquirer. However, the Inquirer was sort of out of the game, as, as yeah. we said, and, and more protecting him. You also had tentacles. It was a, the, 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 the system that allowed Harvey to, to carry on this way for decades permeates all of Hollywood. So it just had, it, the story had, was really wide-ranging in terms of its impact. I would agree that, um, one, that the women were famous. Not to say that Gretchen Carlson, who I do think should be called out in every single story like yes. this for being the one who got herself together and got it ready to go and sued Roger Ailes. Um, I also think that, and this is something that people in you know, who I talk to who are around Fox and in the right-wing kind of world um, say that, that Fox wrongdoing was dismissed because they were like, well, of course it's happening at Fox. You know, yeah. like that's just a whole cesspool right. of well, like— Well, look what's on air, right? Right. Like well, it's got a leering like, camera. Did, I mean, this is the thing that was so frustrating about reporting on the Ale story was that people would say, well, what did those women expect? And I was like, have you guys never heard that just because she's wearing a miniskirt yeah. doesn't mean that she, you know, deserves to be sexually harassed? But I do think that it was two things. One, the women were famous, um, and we still haven't given a ton of attention to— women who are in working-class jobs and who aren't famous. And two is that it happened at Fox, and everybody was like, oh, yeah, well, that's obviously where it's, that kind of thing is going to happen. I also think that the women, though, that 
that after the now long ago Billy Bush tape came out and days later Donald Trump was elected president and those women who had accused him during the campaign of groping, um, there was kind of like a major uh, like emotional reaction that a lot of women had, although not 53 percent of white women who elected Donald Trump had, um, about what this meant about the way women could be treated and talked about. And, and I think that that was bubbling for a long time. It's late December. Harvey Weinstein broke in, what, October? Yes, October 5th, I believe. Daily drumbeat of stories like this. On, on a given day, there will be multiple stories in The Times about multiple people. There will be three stories about Mario Battaglia in a week between Vox and The Times and Washington Post. Impossible question to answer, but I'll ask anyway. Um, how long do you think we we go through this? Like how much is this is this a years long story or is this or, do, or at some point does it, do, have we either gone through all of the the celebrity and well-known harassers and or or the appetite for those stories? I mean, I, I say that, that in some ways that it's up to the journalists who are pursuing them um, to continue the to continue hearing the stories and asking for the stories, there is a risk always, as we've discussed earlier, about whether Donald Trump is calling something fake news that you need to advance the story. So just another, like, kind of famous guy who's sexually harassing somebody now, that's sort of like, nope, you don't even read the story anymore because, like, okay, fine. Like, that's, right. you know. Um, there's a risk of everybody becoming inured to it. There's a risk of journalists, like, not wanting to do those stories anymore because um, it's not that hot. You know, somebody's going to probably win a Pulitzer. Um, they're, they're, the pressure to do those kinds of stories will then relinquish somewhat at big papers. Just, just, just spell that out for people who aren't in our little bubble. So mm-hmm. so multiple times reporters are going to win a Pulitzer, we all assume, for the Harvey Weinstein reporting. Jimmy did some of it. Um, why, why wouldn't that encourage more reporters to do more of that kind of work? Well, that would leave the mistaken impression that the story is played out. Right. But And prizes end up being motivation, but— the truth is that the great tragedy would be if that were to happen is that, you know, we're not done reporting this story. And this is where reader interest in some cases may have has to take a, a back seat, you know, and that goes back to like, let's take the Lauer story again. You want to know what was going on in NBC. Like, again, Len, like I said about Harvey, the, what are the systemic problems? We need to keep exploring those and the cultural problems. Absolutely. And I also think that, um, this will be the test. I mean, Susan Scherer at the New York Times just did a big piece on how Ford, which has been aware of it, Ford Motor Company is aware of a problem of harassment at the company. They've done a lot of things to try to address it. It's really intractable, very hard to solve. And there are a lot of women whose names you do not know. You can't identify anyone who works at Ford starting with the CEO. Exactly. So who cares? Is like, at a, you know, it's definitely not a sexy media company. Is This is a car company. It's not even like you know, Elon Musk's company. Nope. It's just something that's totally unsexy. Um, and everybody recognizes that the vast majority of women who are suffering the greatest levels of sexual harassment in their work are, are not the famous ones. We've referenced uh, Fox and Murdoch a bunch. Let's, let's go there. Normally, and if this is a normal year, Rupert Murdoch essentially selling off most of his company his sons, at least one of his sons, getting out of the family business. We assume James Murdoch is going to leave and go to Disney. That'd be the story of the year. We'd be obsessed with it. One of the stories. Of the well, year. It'll be a story of the year for us, for like us, for the media yes, people. For yeah, us. yeah, yeah. Be, we would be consumed with it. Now it's <laughs> one of the things we're paying attention to. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think this is about the f- sons saying we don't want to be in this business in a couple of years, Dad? Do you think it's about 
Rupert Murdoch really looking at the media landscape and saying, I can't compete? Is there something else going on? I mean, I think for a long time, ever since, um, well, first of all, Rupert Murdoch has wanted his sons to succeed him at the top of his company for their whole lives. This is like his dream from the get-go. Um, ever since James sort of, and, and Lachlan before him, kind of rose up in the ranks, but particularly it happened when James was in London, there were sort of two companies that were operating. One was the much more kind of technocratic James Murdoch, interested in, in you know, innovative modes of delivery for media, and Rupert, who was so not that interested in that He's stuff. He's a newsroom guy. He's, he's a newsroom guy. He's a political influence guy. He's got his kind of, he's he's a buccaneer. He wants to have his employees to call themselves pirates. He likes being a bully. He likes everybody thinking that he's a bully. So there were sort of, it was like tale of two media companies, cities at, inside that place. And James's big deal that he wanted to get done was this deal to buy the rest of Sky, which would have allowed— It's a U.K. satellite company. Which is a big, UK, which is a big satellite company yep. that they would have been able to then deliver lots of their content in innovative ways, et cetera, et cetera. And that deal was initially scuttled because of the phone hacking scandal that happened when— Remember Rupert, that giant story that we've right, all moved That over. was, you know, um, when, when lots of different U.K. tabloids, but, pre, pre, you know, mostly the news of the world that we were all focusing on, was listening to people's— um, Voicemails and using that information to then blackmail them. So, it, and it, there were police officers who were being paid for. I mean, it was just a massive scandal that scuttled the deal for the first time around. They split the company in half, 21st Century Fox, and not in half, actually, one tiny little part of it that had all the newspapers and then the rest of it that, and, and, the rest of it that kept Fox News. And There's one part that makes money and everyone's excited about it, and one right. part has a newspaper. That they yep. keep because excited about. Rupert Murdoch loves newspapers. Yep. Um, and then the second time they tried to get this deal done, the Fox News sexual harassment scandal and the secret payments that people were that, that Fox was paying in order to, to keep, and Bill O'Reilly was paying in order to keep its sexual harassment problem quiet, bubbled up again, and it seemed like they were on the brink of losing that deal a second time. And, you know, so this is in some ways a natural split. You cannot have toxic, um, potentially criminal assets in a company that's trying to be a global business. So I think they just, you know, I would love to have heard the um, the dinner table conversation around the decision, but they decided to split You're it. You're sort of looking at this, right? Like so James Murdoch, in theory, is in charge of Fox News. Rupert Murdoch is actually running it. James right. Murdoch won't come out and say this, but he's repelled by much of what's in Fox News, but not enough to actually shut it down. He doesn't have the ability to shut it down or radically change it. And his dad loves it. And right. so now you've, got a, now you've got something where the stuff James is interested in is leaving Fox and yeah. his dad is keeping Fox News. Mm -hmm. But interestingly here, in terms of the tale of the two companies, it's the buccaneering Murdoch world that is has finally undermined the whole the other one. Right, right. That that spirit, if to the extent that Sky um, was part of the company breaker, yeah. that's because it was not the the British regulators had to question: Is this a fit and proper company to own? It's a very British regulatory idea: fit and proper, <laughs> right? And you know. <laughs> Sexual harassment scandal, Fox undermines that. So, and and the sexual. I harassment. do remember this narrative from was it five years ago? It was in two thousand and eleven, I think. Well, yes, five-ish years ago, where 12, where, the, yeah. where we said, oh, that Rupert Murdoch has been undermined by his own bad behavior, and, mm -hmm. and he's had to split up Fox, and then within a year, he said, no, no, actually, everything's great. Here it is again. But the other thing that's less kind of sexy to the average 
listener, but it's very important, is this idea that, you know, Murdoch, as long as I've covered him, certainly Sarah wrote a book about him. He's about voracious growth, 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 growth. We, we're going right. to eat the world. And they finally hit a point where I'm sure the technocratic work that James is doing found we can't grow fast enough to compete in this new world. And to me, that is a shocker. And it's that's huge. Yeah, to me, if Je- if Rupert Murdoch is saying I can't compete anymore, and by the way, if Jeff Bukas is saying this is as good as it gets, these big, super successful media moguls, top of their game, are saying we we're walking away from the table. I don't know who'd want to be the buyer. Right. Well, you remember the last company that tried to buy Time Warner was 21st Century yeah. Fox, and they turned them down because they were like, oh, you know, you can't offer us what we. What we need to grow. Murdoch says, "Well, I'm not. I'm not giving up. This is a pivot. I'm. I'm going to do stuff." Sort of hinted that maybe there's there's some TV stuff left for him to do. What What do you think he does with Fox News left to his own devices? Well, I think that one of the things he talked about was local news and local, um, which is to me clearly directed towards the Sinclair deal that is about building another right wing. Um, media kind of empire through Sinclair local owns local TV stations up until uh, this year. Most people had never heard of them. Still, right. most people have not heard of them, which is why I'm <laughs> backfilling here. Yeah, yeah. Um, but they own local TV stations. They're going to buy a lot more once Donald Trump blesses that merger. Mm-hmm. And your theory is Rupert Murdoch will want to take them on so he's not outflanked. I think so. And that Sinclair merger really <laughs> caught another surprise, right? But I think they were so distracted with their own scandals that the Sinclair stations merger with Tribune caught them off guard and they scrambled to try to get in on that themselves. Mm-hmm. So I think that really stung Murdoch. It was like a splash of cold water in his face. And television stations now, the caps are off. You can buy, you can cover so much more of the country Yes, thanks to, uh, back to our favorite character in this podcast, Donald Trump, um, the administration has just made it possible. You used to not be able to own a local television um, station and a newspaper in the same market. Now you can do all of those things. So this is, we're talking about the Sinclair, which is allowing you to consolidate local TV stations and local newspapers. I, I live in a world and I write about this stuff all day. If you're listening to this podcast, you probably have this mindset where the notion of a local newspaper being relevant, let alone local TV, mm-hmm. bananas, right? Talk about horse and buggies. Um, why, why are those Why are those institutions important in 2017, in 2018? Why is Rupert Murdoch spending time thinking about local TV? Well, I mean, part of it's that's the business he's in. Um, he's not a uh, you know, a forward, and he's not, he is a forward looking kind of person, but I would say that that one, that's the business he's in. The other thing is, I think, as much as we sit here and talk about this, local television is actually still something that reaches a lot of people. And when you talk to political consultants a lot about of voters. a lot of voters, um, you talk to political consultants and they say, okay, fine, people are watching, you know, I mean, I remember talking about this with, with how many people are actually watching the Megyn Kelly show when it was on Fox and how influential is it really? It's nowhere near what your local news division is churning out in terms of political influence. And they spit out cash when they're working as they should. Yeah. And lastly, what, what I think we'll all be paying a lot more attention to is the extra digital tiers from stations. that mm-hmm. give It could be like its own cable dial as people cut the cord. So I feel like there's some play up Murdoch's sleeve along those lines as well. There's always something up his sleeve, right, Sarah? Like, I mean, that's that that it has always been the case that he, he will have a plan until he is no longer on this planet, right? Right, or un- until his plan isn't quite relevant. I mean, you know, he is uh, getting up there in age, although he still has you know moments of um, sharp 
uh, analysis. Yeah, no, he seems it. like he's he's pretty much on the ball, except when he well, he's kind of when he doesn't want is to and be. isn't is and isn't. Yeah, right. Um, well, twenty eighteen biggest story of the year. You if in a year from now, what will, what will we have said was the biggest story of twenty eighteen? Oh, that is really hard. I mean, I think it's going to be something along the lines of um, the Facebook story that we kind of alluded to. I don't know which part of it. I'm not saying Facebook is the biggest story. I just think the the way people are getting their, the biggest media story, like the way that people are getting their information and from where and how that's affecting culture, I think is going to be this very, um, you know, whether it's the tech part of it, the media part of it, the politics part of it, it's all going to be, you know, certainly something we're going to be paying attention to in 2018. That terrifies the Facebook people who are just hoping they can sort of like get through the 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 ringer and then exit and go back to selling ads. Well, the problem is, is they're not they can't get as big as they want. I mean, they aren't growing in the exact same way that they used to. So they have, you know, pretty fantastic growth. It's but it's just the beginning of that story for them. And then um, there are other stories that will be huge depending on what happens. Right? If the Trump administration decides to start subpoenaing reporters or bringing Espionage Act cases, that would be giant. Um, what happens with the Russia investigation? If it goes nowhere, is there huge? Are there huge recriminations for the media, which obviously had to report the story as it developed? Um, that will be giant one way or another. You have the midterms coming up, so the uh, and we know that the uh, it's at least as of this year, the idea was that the anti-media message was going to be big. Mm-hmm. That's going to be newly treacherous territory. So um, it's like there are a lot of kind of things hanging in the balance that this coming year can determine. So this sounds dour, right? But can we all agree that this is a fascinating, invigorating beat? It's a lot of fun to write about. It's such a good time to be writing about yeah, it if you're not worried about the existential threat to your own livelihood. It's fantastic. If you can just if you can just sequester the part about yeah. doom. Yeah. Well, it's got totally. all it's got all the elements we love as reporters, right? It's like con- it's consequential. It's the the shifting paradigms, you know, it just, it, the beat really matters in ways that, you know. Absolutely. It's super fun. You guys have been super generous with your time. Sarah has to go interview someone on a train. Just take a train to do an interview. Jim's going to go make content. I'm going to make content. You guys should do whatever you're doing. Um, thank you for listening throughout the year. Thanks to you guys for joining us. We will thank see you, you next so week. Thank you so much for having Thanks. us. Merry Christmas and happy holidays. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thanks again to Sarah and Jim for joining us. And thanks to you guys for listening. We like doing this. We like that you like listening. Um, All we ask is that you tell someone else that you like listening so they can listen as well. You know how to do that, so I won't tell you how to post on Facebook or tweet or just tell someone on the street. Uh, If you really want to see this stuff live, we can accommodate that as well. There's the Code Media Conference, February 12th and 13th in Sunday, California. Uh, Kara Swisher will be there. So we have some great guests. I'm not quite sure when this is airing, so I want you to go to recode.net and look, but it's a pretty cool list. You'll like it. Thanks to our sponsors. And thanks to Cadence 13 and Box Media who bring those sponsors to the show so you can listen to Recode Media for free. Thanks to my producers, Eric Johnson and Gold Arthur. This is Recode Media. I will see you next week.